Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Last week, UW-Madison Chancellor Mnookin announced plans for the establishment of a permanent center to continue and expand upon the work of the university's public history project, the limited-term effort dedicated to excavating the hidden history of the university's marginalized communities. Joining us today to discuss the origins, purpose, and future of the project and what it might mean what it means to do public history is the project's director, Casey Lucini Butcher, a holder of a master's degree in, in heritage studies in, and public history from the University of Minnesota. Lucini Butcher was a co-curator of the multiple award-winning exhibition Owning Up Racism and Housing in Minneapolis, which was an exploration of the history of racist housing policy in the city and its lasting uh, effects. Her writings include such titles as Successful Beyond Expectation, Blackface, Minstrelsy, and Racist Entertainment at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which appeared at the UW-Madison Public History Project in 2020. Uh, Casey Lucini Butcher, welcome to WRT. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, Casey, I'd like to start at some basic level with a seemingly simple yet complex question. What is public history? I gathered from preparing for today that you see it as something other than and beyond some academic endeavor. Uh, you said at one point that there are varying views on the role and definition of a public historian. Go into that a bit. Yes. Yeah, so I actually teach a class at the university and we spend the whole semester thinking about what public history is. And so there's kind of some easy definitions and some complicated definitions. But the easiest way and the way that I you know, tell family at Thanksgiving um, is that I make history for the public. So, you know, lots of times with academic history, academics and academic historians are really making history for journal articles, for books, and oftentimes these kind of academic texts can be very inaccessible. Not only are they written at a certain level or in a certain way, um, using lots of jargon and complex language, but also they're not really marketed to the public, right? They're, they're very much written for academics, for other, by academics, for other academics. Public history is geared towards making sure that the public, and that's a big word, um, but lots of different audiences can interact with history, can learn from history. And so what I tell everybody is that even if you don't know what a public historian is or what we do, you've absolutely interacted with public history in your life. One of the most obvious examples is museums. If you've ever been to a history exhibit, um, that is a great example of public history. Um, but also walking tours, movies, podcasts, plaques and markers. If you've ever been to a national park, um, there are lots of public historians who work in the national park system. So basically, we're, we're kind of everywhere. <laughs> um, and, of, and of course, public statuary, which was very contentious over the past several years, uh, different takes on what's worthy of the statue of remembrance and so on. Yes, absolutely. Let's jump in here. That is talk about the origins of the UW History Project. Now, there's already an official record as it appears in the statements and press release releases from Bascom Hall to tell us that it came about as one response to findings made by a campus study group commissioned to explore the history of two 1920 student organizations with Ku Klux Klux always always stumble over it. Good, I should stumble over it. Make Ku Klux Klan name. Um, the former Chancellor Rebecca Blank commissioned the Public History Project in 2019 as uh, one of several responses to the study group's recommendations. Talk about that. I'd like to take it. Ba- I'd like to take it back a few steps, actually. 
this idea for a study group didn't just fall from the sky. Um, might you provide some broader context, some background reg- regarding what led up to the formation of the study group um, uh, initially called for in the fall of 2017? Remind us, our listeners, and remind me of what was going on on campus and beyond that might have had a um, been a major factor in the initial response from the UW administration. Yeah, so I wasn't in Madison yet, but obviously, you know, studying the history and learning about the origins of the project. Um, what I can say is that, you know, there had been ongoing conversations locally and nationally about our history, right? So you have to think back to 2016, 2017. There is a burgeoning and emerging Black Lives Matter movement that started around that time or that really gained a lot of attention around that time. Um, there is also lots going on politically with the election of Trump. And so people are having lots of conversations about the local and national history of racism, of white supremacy. And I think what you see is lots of local communities grappling with that. So sometimes that looks like statues and monuments. For UW-Madison, in this case, there was this kind of I call it like a hidden secret, but it wasn't really a secret. Lots of people had known or had heard whispers about these two Klan groups from the 1920s. The original research about these groups was actually published in the Wisconsin Magazine of History in 1993. Um, And people knew, right? It It wasn't really that much of a secret. It was kind of well known depending upon your familiarity with the university. And so following this kind of, I think, like culture of reflecting on our history, Um, people started asking about these two Klan groups. And the immediate kind of thing was, let's do the research, right? Like, yes, we have this great article in the Wisconsin Magazine of History, and it's very, very well done. Um, But what else? Are we missing anything else? And so that was really the kind of impetus for the study group was, let's get a good base knowledge of what these two organizations are, and then figure out what we want to do about that history once we know it. So talk about the broader broader findings of the study group. Uh, Importantly, the study group concluded that the organizations existed amidst a pervasive, quote, pervasive campus culture of racism and religious bigotry that went largely unchallenged. Talk about that, uh, and I want to come back to it later on because there's still that, some would argue, still that pervasive continuity of of racism and bigotry uh, embedded in the university. Yeah, I think, you know, when you have these study groups like this and you have all these, if you look at the makeup of the study group, it was really interesting. It wasn't just historians. They really tried to get people from all over campus. Um, But one of the things I think that kept coming up in the study group, because I've met with lots of the individuals, was, you know, these two student groups in the 1920s are not really the center of the problem right? Like, it's really easy to point to them because I think that, you know, when you hear the words Ku Klux Klan, it it invokes such a powerful imagery of racism in our consciousness, right? And so it's really easy to point to that and say, that's the ultimate evil. That is what's wrong with campus. But as the study group was working, there were all these conversations about like, well, what happened in the 1960s? What about what I know that happened in the 1980s, right? What about what happened last year? So there was this kind of frustration or tension, I think, with they were tasked to study these two student groups in the 1920s. And, you know, these committee study groups are tasked very specifically by the chancellor's office or other bodies to do specific work. But at the same time, in these study group meetings, they were having conversations about these broader trends and patterns. And so you can see that sneaking into the report, right? They provide an overview of these two clan groups while also saying this is amongst a broad, pervasive culture of discrimination that we should really look into. And that's really where you get this recommendation for the public history project is I think this frustration of the study group that they had to look at such a narrow research question when there were so many other things that were clearly contributing to this culture of discrimination on campus. So take that, take that a little further. Talk about the recommendations. You mentioned, of course, uh, the recommendation for the creation of the study group. Um, but it went beyond cosmetic changes. You know, it's easy to t- remove a name from a theater or, or a dining hall or, or what have you. Um, uh, but there was so much more that was going on. And, of course, the recommendation for the study group was just one of several recommendations. 
Yeah, so and an interesting thing is the study group actually did not advocate for renaming. So that was like totally separate. And sometimes I think they get looped in together. But they said before we even approach renaming, we should have this public history project. We should figure out what our history is, right? Um, but some of the other recommendations were, I think, like you're kind of pointing to, we're looking at some of the issues. And so one of them was faculty hiring, right, that we do not have as diverse of a faculty body as we would like to. And so there was money allocated to make sure that we're hiring more diverse faculty. Um, and then really recommendations about how we support making the university more diverse as a whole. So also looking at the student body and how we make that more diverse. Um, and the report is online. It's about 35 pages. You can kind of read the history for the listeners. You can read the history and you can also see the full recommendations. You're listening to Casey Lucini Butcher. She's the director of the Public History Project at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, and recently uh, hired on further to d- become director of the permanent facility uh, the f- permanent institution uh, that has just been named. Chancellor Reckleblank commissioned the Public History Project in 2019. You were brought on board uh, that September as director of the effort. What did you see as the newly launched project's purpose or intent? What did you want to do? I was really intrigued by the project um, because of how I think frank and honest the university was being. They said, you know, we want to do this project because we believe that this history is important and we want to do an honest look back at our past. And I think oftentimes what you see is, you know, universities will maybe approach one topic. They'll say, oh, you know, we'll research this one event on campus and really give it like a good going over, but let's not look at everything. And this was expressly, we want you to look at discrimination writ large across the entire history of the university. And so when I got here, you know, amongst trying to figure out what my vision was for the project or how I could best guide the project, I really met with like hundreds of community members and asked them what they wanted from a project like this. So I had tons of meetings, um, like literally hundreds of meetings in my first year or two here. And I asked everybody the same two questions. First, you know, what history do you think we should cover? What's an important story that you know about? Um, What's something that we absolutely can't miss in the project? But the more important question, I think, was I asked everybody in 5, 10, 20 years, how is UW different because we did this work, right? What what is the potential transformative power of looking at our history, of taking our history very seriously? And I mean, all of our history, right? The good, the bad. Um, and, And really bringing that forward, right? And I got this like incredibly thoughtful answers and people would answer me on the spot and then they would email me like a month later or like I'd run into them at a coffee shop and they'd be like, you know what? I've still been thinking about your question. Um, And what I found was that people really wanted this project to first serve as awareness and learning, right? That there's an idea that on campus, a lot of people know about some of these histories, a lot of people don't. So how do we kind of table set? How do we make sure that there is a kind of shared understanding of all of the parts of our history And then the idea that what do we do about that, right? And so that step into action. And I think with the establishment of the Rebecca M. Blank Center for Campus History, we're kind of getting into that next step, right? We had this kind of big project. We did all this research. We put it on display last fall in our Sifting and Reckoning exhibit. Um, We've had hundreds of events. We had 23,000 visitors. Um, We have that table setting phase. And so now we're really looking at what does it look like to actually learn from this history to change things about this university so that we are making it more equitable in the future. So I think it's really exciting time, but also very nebulous. (laughs) You're listening again. You're listening to Casey Lucini Butcher. She's the director of the Public History Project in the newly founded Institute at the UW. We'll be talking about that further on. But I want to take this occasion to invite you, our listeners, to call uh, if you have a question, a comment, you want to get involved in this discussion. Give us a call at 608 256 2001, extension number nine, number nine. Casey, one of the project's results, among others, was last fall's Chazen Museum of Art exhibition entitled Sitting and Reckoning, UW Madison's History of Exclusion and Resistance. Let's talk about that a little bit. Give our listeners, especially those who did not get, get, 
to experience it firsthand, a brief, well, perhaps a brief word sketch of the exhibition, its, its intent in scope. Yeah, the exhibition was kind of, I think, an unprecedented opportunity to learn about a new history of UW-Madison. Histories that are difficult or challenging, but also histories we don't often talk about or display so publicly. Um, So the exhibit was at the Chazen, um, and the title, Sifting and Reckoning, really came from sifting and winnowing, right? We took this kind of foundational UW idea Um, that we were going to search for truth wherever that may be found. And that, you know, it was difficult, but that we needed to do that important work here. And so we wanted people to think about the work that we were doing as a project as directly in line with Sifting and Winnowing. So we titled it Sifting and Reckoning. The exhibit was themed, um, it was divided thematically throughout the gallery so that people could kind of take it piecemeal or go to sections that they knew they wanted to see or kind of take it in as a whole. And so when you walked through, you were first greeted with the 10,000 year history of of Dejope, of Madison, how do we have a university? So that kind of table setting. And then it went into student life or social life After that, we had academic life, so things that happen in the classroom, housing, athletics, and then student activism, because we really wanted people to kind of leave with a sense of of change over time, of how people have changed the university. And we tried to focus equally on exclusion and the ways that people were excluded and marginalized, and also giving space for resistance, that, that through across time, people have tried to change the university and have really made space for themselves and their communities. So there was lots of images, lots of... Um, objects. And I'm happy to say that the entirety of the exhibit, plus additional histories that were not in the gallery, are available right now online at reckoning.wisc.edu. So that is still available. You can see all the primary and secondary sources, objects, and read all the stories. Let's go deeper on on that theme of exclusion and resistance to it. Uh, Give us some examples. Talk about some of the things that you were struck by uh, when you saw the some of the research that had been compiled by lots of folks across the campus. Yeah, as a project team and, you know, in these consultations really with community members, we heard the same thing over and over again, which was, you know, we need to be honest about the worst parts of our history. We need to be truthful about them. And at the same time, it's very disingenuous to only talk about discrimination because people and I think Madison, UW-Madison has a reputation for this a little bit that, you know, it's a protest school. There's a lot of student movements. But beyond that, that that people are always resisting and that resistance looks different. And so we took an approach of resistance where we took it kind of at a bigger scope. It wasn't just sit-ins. It wasn't just, you know, those traditional kind of pickets or protests but it was also small actions. And so a great example, you know, is we argued that the formation of the Chinese student club was an act of resistance. At the time when Chinese students formed the club, they did not have spaces on campus for them. They were, you know, lots of racist jokes in the Daily Cardinal and in the yearbooks. And they decided in spite of that to very publicly make a student group that kind of put them out there. And it resulted in them being mocked some more in the yearbooks and in the newspaper, but they did it anyway. And so we argue that that's resistance, that existing on campus, claiming space for yourself, that that's an act of resistance as much as a protest is, right? That we can look at resistance in these varied ways to kind of see how people have worked to change UW and carve out spaces for themselves or make UW something that is more survivable for them. So we really were trying to balance that. So I think you often, when you walk through the exhibit, you would hear, you know, about discrimination in Greek life and how hard it was for non-white students to join Greek life. And then we'd show you how they formed their own student organizations and how they worked to integrate Greek life, right? So we always tried to kind of balance every section or story so that you're seeing a, a really contextual history, but also a complicated one. When we talk about marginalized groups, um, it's often along the race, de- categorized along the race, racial divide. I'm very happy uh, that you raised the example of the Chinese uh, student club organization, uh, primarily because there's all sorts of marginaliz- mar- marginalization going on. Um, different groups, uh, uh, women, uh, LGBT people, um, anti-Semitism. Um, talk about that. that they, there's a, you know, the university, one of the slogans of the university uh, is celebrate diversity. There was a diversity 
in the exclusion. Yeah, and that was something that was really important to me when I got here was I think in the scheme of higher education history projects, which there there are actually quite a few, they've always almost focused on the university's connection to slavery or on racial discrimination. And when I got here, we we were given the mandate of discrimination writ large. And so I took that really seriously. So as a group, we looked at obviously racial and ethnic discrimination, but we also looked at discrimination against LGBTQ folks, folks with disabilities, religious discrimination, gender discrimination, even if it was only one story, because we wanted people to have a sense of the different types of marginalization that was happening. But more importantly, we wanted people to see themselves reflected in the history. I think one of the issues with, you know, marginalized communities on campus is that they don't often see themselves as the bigger part of the history of the university because we're often telling these celebratory narratives. We're not talking about some of the more complicated issues. So, you know, in working with students with disabilities, there's a very long line of disability activism on campus that almost never gets highlighted because it's seen as antagonistic towards the university or it's seen as a negative. But we wanted students with disabilities and faculty and staff to see themselves as a part of the history, that their history is just as important as celebratory narratives and that we can actually celebrate all the different types of resistance. Right. Take that a little bit further. Um, the disability movement on campus, individuals and groups, it's a little known history. It's one of numerous uh, hidden histories that uh, I think this this project has done a great job so far in excavating. Yeah, there's a misconception that disability activism started after World War II, that that's when we see this kind of influx of folks with disabilities. Um, and actually what we found is that, you know, the first student with a disability was on campus in the 1920s. He was in the law school and there really he had no support that all the supports that he had, he provided for himself. Um, so, you know, he would listen for lulls in traffic to cross the street. Um, he had to figure out how to get to hire somebody to read his textbooks to him. Um, he was blind. And so, you know, we had this kind of thing where we wanted to disrupt the narrative that it's only after World War II. And then on top of that, we wanted to highlight some of the activism. And so, you know, one of the famous names, I think, is obviously James Grasscamp. He was a professor with a disability who worked really hard to establish McBurney. So McBurney is also um, a name that people might be familiar with. Um, and the McBurney Center is named after a student with a disability um, who was here and who worked with Professor Grasscamp. Um, but we wanted to highlight the lots of different forms of activism. So a lot of it was getting access to athletic events. So for a while, students with disabilities were paying more to go to athletic events than students without disabilities. And so we wanted to highlight that. And there was a big fight to get it to be that they would pay the same amount. Um, lots of the athletic facilities didn't have disability seating. They fought for that. But then also students fighting for classroom accommodations, both before and after the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think there's also a myth that, you know, after the Americans with Disabilities Act in the 1990s, that everything was good, that the disability, folks with disabilities got everything they wanted. And that ADA is actually really complicated and often something that isn't fulfilled. The promise of it has not been fulfilled. So we talked a lot about that post-ADA activism too, you know, students struggling to find desks that fit their wheelchairs, things like that, so that we could really highlight just how complex the history is, but also how ongoing it is. So a unique part of the exhibit and the project is that you might have noticed it did not stop at the 1990s or the 2000s. We went all the way up to 2021 uh, because we wanted to kind of show that continuity across time, that these conversations are still happening, this activism is still unfolding. You're listening to Casey Lucini Butcher. We're talking about the public history project at the UW. Uh, we're talking about public history and hidden, hidden history uh, that's well, you have to sometimes force it to the surface. We're, again, we're talking uh, about all these topics, and you're invited to participate at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We've been talking, and I, uh, Jade, our producer, just informed me, or I looked at, at her note, that we actually do have three people waiting online uh, with a call, a comment or a question. Let's go to caller number one. Hi, Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. And, and uh, it's, it's great to hear your guest. I'm, I'm thrilled about this new uh, position and office and its mandate. And um, also, I, I thought the uh, sifting and winnowing exhibit was, was fantastic. My, my question uh, has to do with 
UW Madison's relationship with uh, surrounding neighborhoods in in Madison, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of um, some some years back when there was that study done uh, of the KKK on campus. Uh, it it really kind of sidestepped the fact that there was this larger KKK activity in the, in the 20s in Madison, largely directed at uh, the Greenbush area, which of course had some African Americans, also Jews, also uh, Sicilian and Albanese, uh, you know, uh, uh, Italians who were relatively. New immigrants. This was seen as a, a lawless area, not only because it had, you know, like dark and foreign and, and people and those who weren't, uh, you know, Christians and uh, new, new immigrants and, and and so forth. And not only was that area targeted uh, in in the twenties, uh, but also it was wiped out uh, by urban renewal in the sixties, which we know has been a, you know. A tool to destroy so-called worthless uh, minority neighborhoods and uh, disenfranchise them. Thank and, you, Jim. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I, I'd like that address because UW has a big building that sits there in the South Park neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great point. So one of the frustrations, I think, for us as the project is that we only had two and a half years to research the entire history of discrimination and resistance at UW. So, you know, you say it and I it's it's obviously we could not research everything. That's a question that we get a lot. And something that we're really interested in pursuing further is like this relationship between the university and the city, right? The town gown relationship. Um, and it's something that I think lots more scholars of higher ed history are actually looking at. So like Devarian Baldwin wrote this very famous book called In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, which I would recommend. Um, and so we want to keep looking into that. It's a question that we get a lot and something we do hope to look into is more of these relationships. But also, like you pointed out, how social cultural things in the city bled into campus and affected the culture of campus as well, because there's not like a clear line, right, where you enter campus and it's some magic utopia that is separate from, you know, racism or the uh, the bigger currents of our society. So something we definitely want to look into in the future more. Let's continue on with our callers. Uh, hello, Joanne, you're on the air. Fantastic show. I've got two quick questions. One relates to the anti-smoking campaigns of the 1970s and early 80s. My students are always amazed when I tell them about how much smoke there was. And we're talking pipes. We're talking about uh, cigars. And uh, Helen C. White just filled with, with smoke. And, of course, we worked against that. Uh, lots of lots of activity. Um, and the second question relates to the right to be forgotten. I'm wondering what will happen when, uh, and maybe it's happened already, when a relative says, hey, I don't want a picture of my uh, relative doing these bad things to people with disabilities, dot, dot, dot. Um, or perhaps to get their own materials out of the collections that you have because, of course, the embarrassment. So thank you so much. I'll hang up. Yeah, so the smoking thing is very funny because we were researching the kind of history of UWPD and how, how we got to have a campus police department. And you would not believe I would be looking through these files and it would just be a smoking ticket, parking ticket, smoking, 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 underage drinking, smoking ticket, parking ticket, because they had such a hard time enforcing the smoking ban because students were just breaking it constantly. Um, that's all I that's a, just a silly anecdote that I know about it. But there was like this large movement to stop smoking on campus. And I think you know, now, right, I grew up in a time when you could still smoke in restaurants, and that stopped when I was like a kid. And so it's funny now to think about students who who literally are like shocked that people were just smoking everywhere. And that was true on campus, too. And it was so hard to stop. You know, um, you know I just want to jump in here very quickly. Yeah. The, the first time I walked, uh, my first visit ever to the Memorial Union, I walked in on a Friday afternoon to the Rathskeller, and there was this cloud of smoke in the Rathskeller very visible uh and it wasn't tobacco yeah. <laughs> a sign go. of the times yes, maybe alan oh let's let's i'm sorry i interrupted you and you, were, you this, i just i i love the, the second question which i think is so fascinating is like this right to be forgotten right like that and particularly i think we've run into this there's this question of you know we, we decided, we had lots of conversations about who do we name in the exhibit, right? When do you use someone's name? And so often with stories of like kind of these like 
unsung heroes or these forgotten individuals. We wanted to use their name because we wanted to give them, you know, their credit, right? We wanted to show the ways that, you know, these people either fought the university or made space for themselves. You know, like one of the athletes we highlighted, my favorite story is Akio Kanoshima, who was a Japanese American who was interned and then came to UW and had a very successful boxing career, but also was just kind of like a campus sensation. We wanted to name him because we wanted people to know somebody. We wanted to kind of highlight these people histories. But we did have conversations about folks who had done things that maybe, you know, we were critiquing or things we were, we would be less proud of today. And where we landed was, you know, we were okay with naming people who maybe were in power, right? Chancellors, deans, people who had these high authority positions, because often they kind of know that they're public figures. They know that the work that they do is, is public and that it might be judged. We did talk to some of their descendants though, right? We talked to some of their children or their grandchildren, and it was really interesting because a lot of them, I think, have a, a feel weird about it. They, and they don't always know. It's a very complicated feeling of, I know my dad did that, or I know that my grandpa did that, but I knew him personally differently. Or I knew that his private feelings on the issue were actually different, but he was forced publicly in his position of power to make this decision. And so wherever we can, we've tried to like complicate that, but also show empathy for people, right? And you know, I think the big controversy is, in history today is people don't want us to judge people in the past by today's standards. And so we really did try to put people in their historical context and to explain based on the records why these chancellors made these decisions, why these deans made these decisions. But we did hear from family members that, you know, they knew that they felt differently in private, right? And so anytime somebody didn't want to be pictured or didn't want to be featured, you know, I think we would fall on the side because we're a very community-based project of not including them. But we did have these conversations. I think it's an interesting one and one that we'll like definitely have to grapple with more in the future as historians. You know, we have uh, people queuing up to join us today. I, you, usually don't, we usually don't get so many calls, so I'm happy to see this. Uh, let's go to, uh, is it Sarah's up next? Hello, Sarah. You're yeah. on the air. Hello. Hello, Alan. Thanks for the program. I have a question for uh, both of you. <laughs> um, do you know when the University of Wisconsin had or began? Sarah, you're breaking up. I'm sorry. I think we lost that connection. Let's go to the next, uh, the... Um, Ron, Ron's on the air. Uh, hi, Ron, you're, you are on the air. Hi, Alan. How you doing? Good. Go ahead, please. Okay. Uh, quick uh, comment and question. Uh, in February of 1969, I participated in the black student strike here, uh, which took place for seven days and shut down the university so we could get an Afro-American studies department. Uh, the chancellor and the faculty opposed that. And it wasn't until the students went on strike uh, that they came to their senses. But they had to call out the National Guard and try to crush us, but it didn't work. And so I'd like to know if you covered that in your work and you found out who the real actors were in the faculty who held that proposal up, which had been on the radar screen of the university for over 10 years. Thanks, Ron. Yes, we did research that. So um, if you go to our website, reckoning.wis.edu, we have a lot of information about 1969 um, strike. Uh, but we also, there is a 1969 strike website that was created by the university as well, which is really good. It's very, very detailed. It has lots of oral histories. And it does point out individuals who both helped to organize and facilitate the strike and others who participated. I think our take on the strike was a little different than the university's take on the strike. And what we really wanted to highlight in our history of the 1969 student strike was that students put themselves at great personal risk to change the university. So the students who organized the 1969 strike were expelled or left the university without degrees and that record followed them. So almost all of them do not have degrees today because they could not get into other universities. And if they tried, this record followed them. And so we really wanted to highlight that student activism is a choice and it's one that comes with very serious consequences, not only arrest, but expulsion and really something that changes the trajectory of your life. And that students are so passionate about these issues and so passionate about the university that they're willing to risk that, that they're willing 
to put themselves in physical danger, but also their futures in danger. And we we felt like there that that big kind of seedy part of it wasn't recognized enough. And so our take on it was really getting people to think very dramatically about what pushes students to do activism and how it puts them under threat to really change an institution when they're really just here to get an education. I always point that out too, that students come here to learn and that they often get involved in these student activism movements because they they care deeply about the university and they want it to be better. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, we're getting short on time here and there's so much we could talk about. As, as we're all aware, it's in the news every night now. <laughs> there's this conservative attack well underway aimed at inclusive historical writing and endeavors uh, endeavors that challenge the dominant mainstream American saga myths. I'm, I assume, I have to assume from your, what I could, what's visible of your track record, uh, that, that you have thoughts about that offensive as, as, a socially, as a socially engaged public historian. Talk about that a little bit. Um, this is stuff right now going on with the advanced placement testing in, in Florida. And, but it seems like almost every week there's a new issue that, that, that the right in this country, conservatives are, are getting, going after, especially uh, who controls, who writes, who does history, what's worthy history and what isn't. Yeah, and I think those debates, you know, like who can do history, who's worthy, who has the right qualifications, that's been a debate in the field for a long time, too. And it's it's interesting that the field of history has actually broadened a lot, and the people who do history have broadened a lot, at the same time that there's this outer kind of constricting force on what history is and what histories we should talk about. I think one of the core issues is that sometimes people view new histories or new understandings as rewriting history or that somehow they view it as a zero-sum game that if we talk about native history and we really take seriously the history of indigenous populations that we also can't talk about settlers that we also can't talk about german immigrants or you know scandinavian immigrants i like to think of history as a tapestry i think that we, the more we add, the better we do. I think we have space to talk about all these histories and to understand our larger history more deeply and that we don't have to view them as so threatening. But I think you're pointing to the main thing, which is that some of these histories are threatening because they critique myths that we've often held about ourselves. And so I, I don't know what we do about that, except I know that there are lots of historians who are dedicated to keep telling the stories until somebody forces us to stop. Right. Um, and I think that that's like a key thing is that we want to tell these histories and we're going to keep telling them. And people believe so deeply in this work that they'll keep doing it. Jade tells me that we do have a uh, caller who's been waiting patiently to get on with a question or a comment. Hello, Diane, you're on the air. Hi, Alan. Thank you very much for having this program. Casey, thank you very much for doing this work. I have a two part question. One is, have you already published or shared in any way some of the findings. The second part is, where are you thinking about doing all the sharing? Because I heard you say that the language has to be changed for the general reader, for the community, because we're not dealing just with academics. And I have a particular interest in this because there was a very famous anthropologist, Margaret Mead, who used to publish things of an anthropological nature in women's homes and garden magazines, women's magazines. I'm gonna take your answer off the line. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Um, yes, yeah, so our information is available and everything we've created really has been geared towards the public. That was kind of the foundation of the project. We really didn't wanna do academic publishing because we wanted this to be for the community, for the public. So the exhibit closed on December 23rd, but everything that was in the exhibit, plus a lot of additional histories and stories is available on our website, which is reckoning.wisc.edu. We also have extensive blog posts. So these blog posts are written by graduate and undergraduate students who worked for the project. 
and we give them the chance to kind of unpack these histories. And I think it's really powerful to give students who are here the chance to write the history of this place and kind of make it a community project. Um, and so those articles are great. They range from like 2,000 to 8,000 words. So they allow you to kind of get a snippet of a story or, you know, delve deep into one really specific issue. But all of that's available online. And we really did write it for the public. So you'll see that there's kind of a narrative arc to it. And we don't get into some of, I think, the like deep, deep history issues that people often want us to, but we try and point where we can to others. So we always give book recommendations. We make sure to link to other academic articles um, so that people who kind of want to go really deep into that can. But yes, reckoning.wisc.edu is where you can find all of our information. You know, we're getting short of time here, unfortunately, but we do have one. We're going to squeeze in the final caller for the hour. Hello, Rich. You're on the air. Hi. I'm tuned in late, so I don't know if this comment fits or not, but you'll tell me. I'm wondering if the project also considers socioeconomic discrimination. I'm thinking about having been a student at UW more than two-thirds of a century ago and recognizing that there was very limited understanding of the town part of where a university exists. I won't say it was exactly anti-blue collar or anti-unionism. I know the School for Workers sort of emerged out of that need to address people who came from union laborers background. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Yes, that's something that we want to research further. It did come up, right? Like we talked a lot about when the university was founded, it was clearly founded for people who had money, right? For wealthy white men to get an education. That was the primary populace and particularly wealthy white women who also came later during the Civil War. Um, it wasn't made for everybody. And so we haven't got to unpack it in the way that we want to, though. And so now that the project is turning into a center, we have the opportunity to do that. So that's definitely on our list of something to expand on. Casey, you, you mentioned, of course, we've mentioned several times that the Chazen exhibit came to a close in December. In January, now the um, uh, center named after uh, Rebecca Blank has been... Um, well, mandated and is going to happen, and you're going to be the director of this permanent uh, uh, permanent institute, really, at at the, on the campus. But now that the public history project with you as director has has been given a longer term in institutional presence, I imagine you have some pipe dream projects, right, uh, for the new uh, center. Anything you'd like to share with us? Yes, um, we have so many dreams about it. You know, this is, and I, I have to like, I keep stressing to people, nobody else in the country is doing this. UW-Madison is the first. We are the first to dedicate a permanent center with permanent staff to studying the history of our own university. Um, and so we're just excited because there's almost limitless potential. Um, one of the things we've heard from community that we're working very hard on is trying to find a new space to permanently reinstall Sifting and Reckoning so that people can continue to learn from it and continue to enjoy it and that we can keep updating it as more histories are researched by students and become available. That's a big one. Um, we want to keep doing events and, and public lectures and really hearing from the community about what they want from us. Um, we'd love to do more pop-up exhibits. We're really excited about helping different departments and units on campus research their specific histories and do a better job of doing historical, his, you know, storytelling on themselves. Um, and really, we're just excited to continue being a resource for not only the campus community, but for the Madison community. So we kind of feel at this point, it's like a giddy sense of, of limitless potential that we can almost do anything now that we kind of have this room to play with. And we're really letting our community guide us in that and tell us what they want from us. I want to backtrack a little bit uh, and go a little bit deeper, I hope, on a, well, on a theme or a question that interests me. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on challenging cha the challenge the challenge you face of linking your historical work with the imperatives to address current issues. You've st you stated that something really important to you is showing that history is connected to the present. 
that history is not a specific place in the past, uh, that it weaves through everything we do every day. Talk about that, because, again, it's it's part of my life. Uh, I often on this program have quoted um, uh, William Faulkner saying, you know, the... the uh, History, history is indebted. It hasn't even passed. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, that, and this is a debate in the history field. So if there's any historians listening, they'll they'll maybe be rolling their eyes, maybe not. But it's this idea of like, and, and I proudly say that I, I like a presentist history. I think that as historians, it's really important to link history to the present. You know, some people will say you should only study history and study what happened in the past and only think about it in the past. And I think that we make ourselves kind of useless then, right? I think that history is always linked to what's happening right now, right? Like there's nothing that is going on currently that does not have a legacy or a link to the past. And so illuminating that hopefully will educate us about how we got here and what choices were made that led us to get here. And maybe if we want things to change, how we change those things. So for me, my history practice has always been about linking history to the present because I think it's critical. I think it makes history useful to people and I think it makes it useful to their lives. And I've often remarked, I I did not like history in high school. I hated history in high school because I didn't think it it related to me, right? I was like, I'm a 16-year-old girl. I love going to the mall. I like reading books. What does what does, you know, war have to do with me? What what do presidential histories have to do with me? If I would have known other histories that were that had effects on my life, I think, you know, if I wouldn't know the history of the mall, I would have been pretty interested in that. So I always am trying to think for people about, you know, not only how we can tell different stories that interest folks or that make people see history as something that's interesting and related to them, but also history as a tool. It is something that if we learn, we can hopefully use to make our world, our society, our, our communities better. We have, uh, this is amazing today. I'm, I'm amazed by the number of callers. We're going to squeeze one more in. Uh, Tony, you're on the air. Hi, thanks a lot. And I just caught the last part of the show. Sorry about that. Um, I just wanted to make sure, I mean, I did see the 15 and winnowing uh, exhibit at the Chase in a little bit, and I kind of felt that uh, the Chicano story um, was, I don't want to say it was lacking, but I was just wondering how, far you had uh, delved into the whole struggle that uh, uh, Chicano Student Organization, uh, Mecha, and before that, La Raza had in terms of the fight for Chicano Studies Department and, and uh, the battles that we went through in the uh, mid to late 70s um, to establish that. And also, also acknowledging that finally, I understand that the university is going to actually uh, um, grant a departmental status to Chicano studies now after uh, all these years, which is a very good thing. So I'll, I'll just get off the line. Thank you. Yes. Every time, this is my favorite part about, I think the project continuing as a center is that everybody's always like, we want the more of this, or like, I'd love to hear you expand on that. That's what we want to do too. We want to tell more histories. We want to highlight more histories. We want to tell more stories. That's like imperative number one for us. So Obviously, the struggle of, I think, any exhibit is that you only have so much space on the walls, in the gallery, and so every story has to be kind of granulated down to so few words. Like I often, you know, tell people some of these stories only had 100 words. You have to tell a story in 100 words. So we have a long-form blog post on the Fight for Chicano Studies on campus, which was incredible. One of our graduate students, Dustin Cohen, did over 36 public or oral history interviews with activists who were here, who had fought for the center or for the um, Chicano Studies on campus. So we have that online, which is great, but it's something we want to expand upon. We did talk about the Mecha history um, in the exhibit as well, but we want to do more. I think that's just the big thing is now that we're permanent, we have the time and the space to, to explore these topics further. So Casey, what's the timeline on the center? Yes. So the public history project was slated to end this July. So it will be formally kind of ending this July. We're spending the spring wrapping up with our final reports, um, which is really going to be a kind of backward looking report on the project as a whole. Um, so very reflective. And then the center will open this summer. Um, so as we've said, but I'll say it again, it is the Rebecca M. Blank Center for Campus History. So that will open this summer. So we're really in this transition period right now. We're doing listening sessions across campus to, to hear 
what our campus community would like from the center, how we can best serve campus. Um, and so this center, we will transition over and the center will open and we're really looking forward to kind of being on campus and serving the campus community and really expanding the work. Any final words? Uh, what have we missed? What would you... I don't know. We've kind of talked about it all, Alan, but I mean, I will just say, I think, you know, this work is, it's difficult, right? It's like hard to have some of these more complicated conversations about history and, and our approach as a project and as the center, but, you know, also just me personally is that I think difficult conversations are worth having, even if they're hard, even if they're uncomfortable, even if we don't always know how to navigate them. And that's really our commitment here. And I think the university's commitment is that we want to keep learning from our past, even if that's hard, even if that's challenging, even if it, you know, is going to be a difficult process. It's it's worth doing because it's that important. And give those details one more time uh, how people can, well, find out more about, well, this whole endeavor. Yes. So if you would like to learn generally about the project, you can find us at publichistoryproject.wisc. So that's W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. Um, and if you want to see our exhibit, Sifting and Reckoning, in its entirety, um, it is at reckoning.wisc, W-I-S-C dot E-D-U. And if you go to one of those websites, they both link to each other. You can also follow us on Instagram at UW Public History Project and find all the links there as well. Um, but we have so much. We have our full exhibit, Sifting and Reckoning. We have curricular materials, blog posts, pre-recorded events and lectures that we've had. It really is a great repository of resources about the history of UW-Madison. Well, I want to thank you ever so much, uh, Casey Lucini Butcher. I didn't butcher your name for a change. You didn't, but thank you so much for having me on. I love WRT, and so I'm very excited that I got to spend this hour with you. Well, uh, it's uh, to be honest with you, I was I, I wasn't sure about doing it initially when it was pitched f to me, and I'm really glad after investigating a little bit. I'm really glad that we hooked up and uh, um, have been able to do this again. You've been listening to Casey Lucini Butcher. She's the director of the Public uh, History Project and the forthcoming Rebecca Blank Center for, for the Study of Public History at the UW-Madison. I, I want to thank Jade for helping out, as always, in production. Chuck, our engineer today, I want to thank you, our callers, our listeners. Uh, great questions today, great lineup. Uh, I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week. With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it